Okay, good evening. So, as you presumably know by now, Purim is around the corner. Purim is just a few days away. And as you probably also know, because everyone knows this, uh, we're obligated to drink on Purim. So the question is, uh, is that really so cut and dry? Is that really so clear that that's the case? And just because everyone knows it, is, uh, is it necessarily true? So I'd like to just discuss that for a few minutes and to highlight some aspects of that and especially how it plays out and some possible implications. So on the one hand, uh, it is certainly very well known that there is a statement the Gemara has in Masechus Megillah on Dav Zayin Bebez, where the Gemara tells us that Chayim Enish Libsume Bepuria Ad Loyada Bein Arahaman Lebarach Mordechai, that one is obligated to drink on Purim. Uh, here it says uh, Puria until he reaches a level where he can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai. It's interesting, that language of Purya, Purim with an Aleph, so you have that word, it probably means something else, but that word shows up in Bav Mitzio also, where the Gemara says that there are three things that a Tamil Chacham has permission to not be straightforward about, to be somewhat misleading about, and he would still be considered to be an honest person. And one of them is Purya. So there the assumption is that it means bed, that that's how it translates in that context, and it refers to personal matters, banish lishto. A person doesn't necessarily have to be forthcoming about if people ask questions about. But the Marsha has an interpretation there that that's the same word here, Purya, that it's a reference to Purim. And the question is, if somebody were to ask you about, did you get drunk on Purim? So you're not obligated to tell him the whole story. You're not obligated to be straightforward with him. And that's something that you can be a little bit less open about and still be considered an honest person. So there is a lot that surrounds this whole idea and a lot of complexity that surrounds this idea of drinking, the assumption of besume. Rashi translates to become spicy, to become perfumed in a sense. With wine, all the language there is a little unusual. So this notion that one should become impacted by wine until he no longer knows the difference between Haman and Mordechai. So the impression one gets from there is that they're supposed to become very drunk. They're supposed to drink until such a point that they're not able to distinguish between the hero and the bad guy until they really are in a very different kind of state of mind. However, there is a what to consider in relation to that, especially when we think about just how unusual a din that is, especially compared to the normal requirements of dignity and safety that we have throughout the year. So a notion such as this is definitely somewhat harder to understand. And what's also noteworthy is that there is a view that has a tremendous impact on this, and that's the view of Rabbeinu Ephraim. And Rabbeinu Ephraim's position is much less well-known than the initial statement of Chai Vinish, and uh, sometimes they've taken an informal poll, 
And uh, I've asked people how many have heard of the position of Rabbeinu Ephraim and the percentage within the percentage of people who have heard about Chayvinish, which is basically everybody Jewish. But when you ask them how many have heard of Rabbeinu Ephraim, so the number goes way down. But the impact of Rabbeinu Ephraim's position on the halacha is something we need to figure out. What is it that Rabbeinu Ephraim says? So he notes that the very next line in the Gemara over there, in Zayin Bebez and Megillah, is to tell a drastic story. And it tells about Rabbi and Ruzera, that they had a per meal together, and they became intoxicated, they got drunk. And then Kam Rabbi, Rabbi got up, and he shechted Ruzera. So apparently something terrible happened. Apparently Ruzera got killed because of the drunkenness at this event. So the next day, Rabbi davened for him, and he came back to life. So then the next year, Rabbi invited Rav Zaira and said, come again, come to my Purim Suda. And Rav Zaira said to him, no thanks, not, not every year do you have miracles, so I'm not going to feel too comfortable coming again. So that story is really surprising because you would think this is the kind of thing that the Gemara would say to such a story, Maisalistor, that bringing the story right after we have this dinner of drinking, so this would seem to be a contradiction. This would seem to tell us that it's a harmful thing to get drunk on Purim. So the interesting thing is that that is indeed the position of Rabbeinu Ephraim, who's quoted in some of the Rishonim, that that's the point, that this is a dramatic way of saying that we don't follow the position of Chayvinish, and that here Rabbi had to pray to have Rav miraculously get reborn, and that's a way of telling us that indeed we should not follow that approach of getting so drunk on Purim. We mentioned a few minutes ago the Marashad has an unusual interpretation on the Gemara in Bav Metziah. So here also he has a unusual interpretation, which makes things a little bit less miraculous, at least, because in the Marashad's interpretation, so he didn't actually kill Rezera, he just hurt him badly, so he was able to daven that he should recover from the injury. So it wasn't as dramatic as Tchias HaMesim, but doesn't change the Iker point. It makes the story a little bit less dramatic, maybe a little bit less miraculous. But the idea that there was a tremendous sakana that came from the drinking, so that remains the case. So says Rebbeinu Ephraim, that's indeed the point, that Maisalistor, that we don't paskin like this, and so that's the end of the story. So one would get the impression that, okay, so fine, so this is a das yachid. This is a minority opinion. I don't know how many people have heard of Rebbeinu Ephraim, the individual even, so Kavachomer, this particular opinion of Rebbeinu Ephraim. So perhaps if you would inform people about this, they'll say, okay, so he's a das yachid, he's not even such a well-known rishon, but he's a das yachid on this issue for sure. So it seems like it's not something that is incorporated in talacha. So you don't have a conclusion in that direction. And we should assume that we're still chayiv l'bsumiyad l'yada. However, it's not necessarily the case. 
So if we try to figure out how the psak goes, if you would try to follow all of the makoros and the sifri halacha to try to get a sense, you won't necessarily come out with the conclusion that Rabbeinu Ephraim's position completely disappears. And in fact, you find that he is present throughout every stage of the development of halacha throughout the Yom Hazeb. And we have to figure out exactly how that can be reconciled with some of the things that we find elsewhere. So, first of all, uh, to note that if we look, for example, at the Rambam. So, the Rambam does record an obligation to drink. He doesn't mention Adulayada. He says that he should drink until the impact causes him to fall asleep. And the Maeser Akeach over there understands that this is so, he should not be able to cause any harm. So if he only drinks until he falls asleep and then he's out of it, so then presumably he's not going to hurt anyone. And the Arach HaShulchan suggests that we have to understand here that how could it be that the Rambam seems to have a different take on it, certainly a different presentation than the very evocative language of the Gemara, and the Archa Shulchan suggests that perhaps what's going on here is that the Rambam agreed with Rabbeinu Ephraim that we didn't actually accept the whole formulation of so therefore he rephrased it in a way that is not as extreme and is not going to necessarily have the same objection that the Gemara brings up. Uh, the Shulchan Aruch, that's an Arachayim in Tafresh Tzadi Hay, so he does codify the language of the Gemara of Chayi Finish Libsumi Bipurya, Adol Yada Bein Arahaman Lebarach Mordechai. But if you read to the Ramah, so the Ramah right away in his Hagal over there, so he adds that there are those who say that you should not become intoxicated to that level. And instead, you should drink a little bit more than you're used to. And with fat, you'll fall asleep. And when you're asleep, you won't know the difference between Arahaman and Baruch Mordechai. And the sources over there in the Ramah, so it refers to the Kolbo and the Maharil for that particular formulation. But if you look in the Taz, so the Taz understands the view of the Ramah to also be in keeping with Rebbeinu Ephraim. So, if these interpretations so far are correct, so what we're seeing here is that Rebbeinu Ephraim, according to the Meister Rokeach, at least, so that is the Rechashochan, so that is the view of the Rambam. Rebbeinu Ephraim is accepted, at least in spirit, by the Rambam. And according to the Taz, it's the Ramah. So this definitely moves it up a big notch, that it's not just a lesser known Rishon, but now it's the Rambam and the Ramah as well. And if that's the case, so then whoever is keeping the language of the Ramah and following the Ramah is also following the Rebbeinu Ephraim. So that would include the Primagadim and the Mishnah Bura and others who are essentially following Biad Ramah, following the language of the Ramah. Now, we have to still explain what that means, because the Shulchan Aruch does have, as we said, the language of the Gemara pretty much word for word. So that's 
noteworthy. But what's also noteworthy is that in the Beis Yosef, the Mechaber has a seemingly different presentation because in the Beis Yosef, he brings the view of Rabbeinu Ephraim. And he doesn't challenge it. And the only other view that he brings actually goes further. And that's the position of the Rush, he quotes, that the Rush is extremely harsh, warning about just how dangerous it is to get drunk. And his language there is that there's no greater Avera than that. So practically speaking, only advocating drinking a little bit more than one's habit is. So that's very confusing because, again, here the language of the Mechaber and Shulchan Aruch is just straight like the Gemara. But his same opinions in the commentary to the tour, that same Mechaber, rather, the commentary to the tour gives you a very different impression. Just quoting Rabbeinu Ephraim, again, seems to not be Nidcha at all, and quoting the Rush, who takes the same position even further. And the Arach HaShulchan tries to figure out what's going on here, and that seems to be a very difficult needle to thread. So I think perhaps the solution is, in terms of understanding these different impressions, that when we consider the two statements, uh, or the two stories, the, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the story of Rabbi and Rosera, so they're not actually arguing with each other that the notion that the second one is impacting on the first, that may be the case, but it's not like they're arguing in the sense that one is saying one thing and the other is arguing and saying another thing. But rather, what you have here is two different statements that are both possibly true, and they're existing side by side. So the first statement in the Gemara, in the is telling us something that apparently might be true on its own. That there is something that is very powerful and that is worth being aware of that drinking on Purim would be able to accomplish. But the second statement, the Shechting of Rav it's not saying that that first statement is not true. It's just saying something to counterbalance that, basically saying that, yeah, that first statement might be true, but it's very, very dangerous. So what we're seeing here is that Rabbeinu Ephraim's position never gets pushed away, never gets defeated. It's essentially never really dealt with. The two positions are not really engaging each other. And they're basically two things that are being said at the same time. That on the one hand, you have this first statement that there's a notion of drinking and that there's some value to it, but there's also this balancing statement that we should be aware that there's a tremendous danger that could come along with it. So what we're finding is from the time of the Gemara on down, and if according to Rabbein Wafrayim, it means this is a view in the Gemara. So it's a statement, this is a dialogue that we have in the Gemara and then in the Rishonim, and then in the time of the Rambam, and then in the time of the Tur, and uh, throughout so at every stage of development, you have the same framework. That you have, on the one hand, this notion of chayvenish, and to think about what that could mean, but in practice, to be very, very aware of just how dangerous it could be. So what's noteworthy from here is that you see that if you look at the Bach and the Taz and the Arach HaShulchan, 
it emerges that all of these poskim basically are agreeing with Rebbeinu Ephraim, but as far as what that means, Lamaisa, so there's still a big space that they're all basically saying that the original statement to the Gemara of Chayvinish is not fully accepted, but they vary in terms of what actually replaces it. And the Bach specifically is really a raya. I think that this general formulation is correct because the Bach, if you read the Bach over there, so he very clearly tells us that there is an obligation to drink on Purim. But he also says, unambiguously, he also says very clearly that Rebbein Ephraim is correct. He says that straight out. So somehow those two points are both true, that Rebbein Ephraim is the conclusion, and yet there's still a din of drinking. So what emerges, what seems to be, however you calibrate the conclusion, that the psaq seems to be that there's a concept theoretically of drinking, but there's an obligation to make sure that one is very, very careful to prevent any danger. So if that's the case, so that's something that has a big statement for how we should factor this in and how we should practice. And this is especially true because of Bisman Hazat, so whatever dangers that the Gemara was highlighting, these dangers are much, much greater nowadays because at the time of Rabban Rezeira, where still there was a mortal danger happening, but you didn't have people driving, you didn't have people getting behind the steering wheel, you didn't have a tremendous crisis with teenagers becoming intoxicated and endangering themselves and others. So you didn't have even the degree of danger that we have as Manazah. Sometimes things become less dangerous as time goes on. If anything, in the case of drinking, so the sakana has gotten greater. So that's something to be aware of, that essentially if that's the maskana that we're supposed to factor in, just how dangerous the drinking possibly could be, so then Bizman Hazad, that point seems to be a much more serious one. That point seems to weigh much more heavily. And if we read the language of the Archa Shulchan and the Bir Halacha, so they do, following in the language of the Rush and the Beis Yosef, they have a very strong warnings about just how dangerous intoxication could be. And the Bir Halacha quotes the Chayadam that if any matter of halacha might possibly be compromised from drunkenness, so then it's better not to become intoxicated. So certainly, uh, we can take as a total given that for sure nobody ever interpreted this then as Yehari Valyavor. So when there is a possibility of Sarkhanas Nefashos, there's no question that that is going to override this notion, or certainly in terms of how it should be practiced. But here you'll find that even any matter of halach, it's not doch anything. So there was a, a language in general, of Kukhaya others talk about if somebody's unable to bench, because let's say they're not uh, fully clear of mind, so whether we would say, Yosek b'mitzvah, patam mitzvah, but here this is a very serious position to consider that maybe... There's no exemption at all for 
being in a intoxicated state, but certainly any kind of sakana, it should really go without saying, but unfortunately it doesn't go without saying. We should certainly understand that uh, there's no heter at all. It's certainly not yahari v'yavor. It's certainly not horeig v'yavor, that one should put anyone else in danger. And that very much should impact how we should appreciate this. So that's something to take very seriously. But then what we're saying here, if we're saying that there is essentially a balance, so on the one hand, there is the notion of sakana, which may in fact override the whole concept, or at a minimum, really put you at most maybe with the position of the Ramah, that there should be a little bit drinking more than normal and then take a nap and then fall asleep. But certainly don't put anyone else in danger. But the balance with that, so what would we do with the very evocative opening statement to the Gemara of So it's noteworthy, I mentioned at the outset, that if you were to take a poll of how many people are aware of Chayvinish versus how many of those people are aware of Rebbein Ephraim, so indeed it would be a much smaller number in the second column. And you can't really blame them. Certainly the first statement has a lot more flash to it. But also if you would do a word count within the halachic literature of how many words are devoted to Chayvinish, and how many are spent on the position of Rebbeinu Ephraim. So one would certainly find that there is much less space that is devoted to the position of Rebbeinu Ephraim. So the concept of what Chayvinish could be, being that it is discussed at great length in Sfarim, and there's certainly a lot to say about it, Alpi Hashkafa and Alpi Halacha, there's a, for example, there is a very interesting chakira of Shmuel Salant of whether this idea of ad yada, do you see that as a sheer p'tur or a sheer kiyum? Uh, is the notion that one is supposed to reach that level, we call a sheer kiyum, or is the idea that one is supposed to keep going and just if they're in this position where they don't know what's happening anymore, so they're putter during that time. So that's an interesting chakira. And he notes that it's parallel to the halacha that's found in Hilchus Avelis, where we find that somebody is supposed to let his hair grow. If somebody's in the Avelis, you're supposed to let his hair grow until his friend tells him that he looks terrible. And there, one could ask the same question. So is that a sheer kiyum, so to speak, that once you reach that level, so then you're done, and you can get a haircut, and it's over? Or is that a sheer p'tur, meaning that if you reach that level, so you're putter during that time, and you don't have to continue at that moment, but then it becomes relevant again after you reset back to zero. So this is itself a... Interesting discussion. There's a lot of lumdus about it, but perhaps we should assume that we should focus on the lumdus instead of the application. And that if the sakana really has a tremendous warning to us that we can't put this in practice to that degree, so we still have the ability to learn about it. And we know that Chazal tell us that when we sometimes have mitzvot that we're not able to fully 
put into practice. So the Zakim in Talmud Torah about it, that's something, for example, actually has relevance in Hulchus Purim that comes up, not so much in Luchutz Laretz or outside of Yerushalayim, but the Gemara says that if Purim falls out on Shabbos, which it could do in Yerushalayim, when Purim is observed on the 15th, that sometimes falls out on Shabbos. So we're not supposed to read the Megillah on Shabbos, that there's a Gzeir Shema Yavirenu, just like Lulav and Shofar. We don't do those mitzvahs on Shabbos, so, so too you don't read the Megillah on Shabbos. But the Gemara says that the Shaul and Vidarshan, that one is obligated to learn about the Megillah, on that Shabbos, and that there will be somewhat of a kiyum, apparently, of the mitzvah that can't otherwise be fulfilled. So we find that concept is well known in the context of Karbanos, where we're told that the Shalma Param Tzvasenu, that instead of fulfilling the mitzvah in the direct sense, so then we should fulfill it through learning about it. So perhaps that's something that we can do on Param. So we should say that the Shalma Param Tzvasenu, to coin a phrase, and that instead of actually actually getting intoxicated to that degree, or at least any more than what the Ramad describes, so one could spend time learning about the sugya. One could spend time learning some of the Sifre Machshava and the Sifre Halacha, that the Sifre Lomdis, what they have to say about this, and that that should be a kiyum. And in order to be able to do that, so one would need to have a clear head, and that's probably a better move. Keep your mind clear and keep your attention focused and devote that energy to learning the sugya, to learning some of the suggestions, Alpi Hashkaf and Alpi Lamdas, of what's said about this. And that would be a kiyum on that level. So I think that that's probably a good idea to keep in mind. Uh, we should also be aware that even within any other shita regarding drinking, so to note that Rashi had the language specifically of yayin, that it's really only uh, would only be a, any kind of a kiyum at all with wine specifically and not with other uh, intoxicating drinks. And also that, according to most, that this is a kiyum in the Suda. So any other time of the day, there would not be a Indian at all to drink. And certainly anybody who's drinking at night, at the night of Purim, so that would be begeder enumutsuva that that's something that's not really a mitzvah at all. According to almost all the Rishonim, with the exception of the Rokeach, the mitzvos of Purim, are really during the day, even though sociologically we have a more focus to the celebration of Purim at night than in Yeshiva. We have uh, Baruch Hashem, a very Lebedic celebration, but also uh, proud that the celebration in Yeshiva usually does not involve any public intoxication in our Yeshiva, and uh, there really wouldn't be an Indian, according to anyone, to drink at night that that's not when the mitzvot of all of Purim are relevant. Even the Kriya Samagillah, it's a whole other surgi, but even the Kriya Samagillah at night is really secondary to the Kriya Samagillah during the daytime. And the mitzvot of Purim are really all applicable during the daytime. And therefore, so any havamina of drinking wouldn't be relevant at night. And to emphasize again, just in case it gets forgotten, it's certainly not Yeherod Valyavor or Harog Valyavor or Hetar for any kind of Sakana. And Adarava, that seems to be what the Gemara is telling us, that the concern of Sakana should be weighed very heavily in mind when considering this. Uh, just to add a little bit, uh, also note that uh, Chassam Sofer has a very famous tshuva, a uh, 
disproportionately famous tshuva in Simon Kuf Vav and his tshuva Sonar Chaim. And that tshuva is about Shalach Manis. And maybe we'll add a word about that. But in the last paragraph of that tshuva, if you remember correctly, so he talks about this Rebbeinu Ephraim. And he has a creative interpretation there because he notes the question that the Prichadish asks that if Rebbeinu Ephraim was correct, so why was it that Rav Zerah didn't want to come the next year? And he said, maybe there won't be a miracle again. Well, he won't need a miracle. If he's not going to be drinking, so he's not going to be in danger. So if Rabbeinu Ephraim is correct that this refuted the first position, so it should have been safe for him to come next year. So personally, I'm not really sure why that's such a question, because maybe we don't know that it was necessarily accepted immediately. It could be that the Gemara told us to worry about this, and then over the years this became accepted. But... That's the question that he raises, that if the assumption is that it meant right away, so this din was nidcha, so then how come the next year he was afraid to come? So the Chassam Sofer has a creative suggestion over there, where he notes that we mentioned a minute ago about the possibility of Purim falling out on Shabbos, as it could happen in the Yerushalayim when it's observed on the 15th. So that's called Purim Meshulash, should be Yerushalayim. Now, when Purim falls out on Shabbos, they call it a three-day Purim because the mitzvot of Purim are scattered. Some of them can't happen on Shabbos, some of them can. So the ones that can't happen on Shabbos or that are a subject of a machlokas, so they get pushed off the previous day or the next day. So you end up having a three-day Purim extravaganza because the mitzvot are scattered over these three days. So the Talmud Yerushalmi has a statement that the Suda should not happen on Shabbos. What's wrong? There's no Isra of having a Suda on Shabbos, Adarabba, that's what we normally do on Shabbos. So that's the problem. The problem is that we normally have a Suda, and therefore there's not going to be any Hecker that is for Purim. So therefore we have to have the Suda of Purim, Tavkanat, on Shabbos, in order that it shouldn't be confused with the Shabbos Suda. There should be some Hecker for Purim. So the Chesem Sofer has a creative interpretation there where he notes that maybe we should say that Rabbi and Ruzeira shouldn't have been having a Suda together to begin with, because there is a notion of a Suda's mitzvah that is the status for a Suda for Talmud Chachamim who come together. So maybe one might think that that Suda, if Rabbi and Ruzeira are eating together, it's going to look like a Suda's Talmud Chachamim, and there also won't be a hecker for the fact that it's in honor of Purim. So... Maybe that's its own issue. So the answer is that, yes, that could have been an issue, but because the Purim Suda had drinking associated with it to such an extreme degree, so that itself was a hacker. So that would have justified their meeting together. But once they got rid of the drinking, so then you go back to the original problem, then it's not going to be clear that it's a Suda for Purim. So that was the nature of his objection. It's a very creative interpretation, not to push a shot the way the Gemara presents itself, but that's an interesting idea. So that tshuva, the Chesam Sofer, just to say another word about it. So as we mentioned, it's a very well-known tshuva, and a very influential tshuva, about the topic of Shalach Manas. And just want to make reference that for a moment, to talk about another aspect that impacts the way Purim is practiced, Bizman Hazeb, and the role of Shalach Manas within that. And the, the Rambam, in Hilchus Megillah B'Chanukah, in Parak Bey's Halacha Yitzayin, so he writes that 
it's more important to emphasize Matanas Levyonim more than Shalachmanis or the Suda. And that we can understand by itself because when it comes to ranking mitzvahs in general, so we know that staka is hugely important, and the Rambam goes on talking there about just how important helping out Aniyim is. But we could also understand that it may be that even within the halacha of Mishalach Manos, there is a reason not to let Shalach Manos get out of hand and to emphasize Matanus Levionim. And to consider that, that same tshuva, the Chassam Sofer over there, Kuftzari Vav, so he made famous what he understood was a machlokas between the Truma Sadeshin and the Manos Halevi in terms of the purpose of Shalach Manos. And the way he understands it, there's some controversy about this, but the way he understands it, according to the Truma Sadeshin and Simakuf Yudalef, that the purpose of Shalach Manos is to make sure that people are able to have enough of a perm suda. That if we don't have food that's going to make a perm suda of a proper level, so it's going to be difficult and people are embarrassed to have to ask and don't want that necessarily to be public. So sending around gifts of food is a way to prevent that from being a problem and to help that problem. Uh, the Manas Alevi, who was written by Shlomo Al-Kabetz, who's the author of L'Chadodi, and this is the second most famous thing he ever wrote, because the Chassam Sofer made it very famous. So in his commentary to Megillus Esther, the Manas Alevi, so it sounds like he's saying that the purpose of Shalach Manas is to offset what Haman said, that Haman said that the Jewish people are scattered and dispersed and we should get rid of them. And therefore, we want to offset that, we want to counteract that, and we want to connect people in bonds of friendship. And the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach, so instead we have Shalach Manas to bring us together. So the Achsam Sofer understood that this was a machlokas, two different views, in how to understand what Shalach Manas is about, and he had many nafkaminas about this. Uh, there were those who argued, didn't think that there was really so much of a difference. Uh, for example, the Shuvah's Priyasada of Reblazer Deutsch, who was also a Hungarian Tamachach, Hungarian Dayan. So he thought that there isn't really a machlokas here at all, that really everyone agrees that the purpose of Shalach Manas is to make friends, like the Manas Alevi sounds like. It's just that once you're doing that, once you're sending gifts to make friends, so so you might as well send something which is going to be helpful for what people are dealing with at the moment. So since people are trying to make sure they have an adequate Suda, so therefore it's helpful to make sure that they have food, so therefore you make friends that way. It's not really such a machlokis. So he objected to this, but everyone else seems to have accepted this formulation. So this tshuva, the chsam sofer, became enormously influential, the idea that there are these two tzadim. Uh, together with that, though, there is another element that the shuvah's tirash v'yitzar points out, and the other, I believe the das sofer has a tshuva along these lines also, that if we understand that Shalach Manas is there to help people who need it, so then there seems to be a very strong commonality between two of the four mitzvahs of Purim. They have the mitzvah of Matanas Levionim and the mitzvah of Shalach Manas, and they're both there to help people who are in need. So 
one suggestion that he has, the Tirish Vietzer, is that once you have sending around Shalach Manas, already you now you have an atmosphere where everybody's giving to everybody else, and therefore the poor who need the Matanas of Yonim are not going to be embarrassed to be helped out because that's what's going on all over. So if we take all these three points together, it becomes very clear that Shalach Manas has a wonderful purpose. But if they become excessive, and if they come at the cost of Matanus Lavyonim, so then they lose that purpose. So first of all, if they become a source of competition, if people find a lot of pressure, that now they have to keep up with the Goldbergs, they have to try to have Shalachmanis as lavish as the Shalachmanis of their neighbor, so then that's just going to create more pressure on families that are already struggling, rather than relieve it. And that's the opposite of the last point. We just said that maybe it's there to make it easier to give to people. Now it's going to make it harder for people. And certainly also, if they provoke jealousy, if they're a source of kina because they're so lavish, so then that's the opposite of chiba v'reis. That's the opposite of bringing people together. That's what pushes people apart. And if they take away from Matanus Levyonim, because all of our resources are directed there, so then for sure that's counterproductive, because if one is meant to make the other possible, so then we certainly wouldn't want one to come at the cost of the other. So it's just important to be aware of. You know, certainly Shalach Manis is a beautiful mitzvah and has a lot to do to create bonds and is a great venue for creativity and for humor and for thoughtfulness and to bring about the spirit of Purim and that's all fantastic. But just to be aware that if they become excessive or very lavish and if they come at the cost of Matanus Levyonim and also at the cost of communal harmony, so then that goes very much in the other direction. So just perhaps these are two points to consider, especially how Purim has developed sometimes, Bizman that to keep the main thing the main thing and to understand the ranking of priorities, that especially when it comes to the drinking, to be very aware of the tremendous sakana and also messaging that can come along with drinking, certainly for the youth that is very, very vulnerable to whatever message is being sent regarding drinking. These are crucial, crucial points, and Bisman Hazad, this is true much more than it ever was true, and especially with addiction playing the role that it does, and uh, alcoholism playing the role that it does. So the sakana that's associated with this can be very, very strong. And if indeed it's the case that we're meant to weigh that sakana in balance with the first idea, I really think that notion of neshama paramus vosenu, let's focus more on the lambdas, focus more on learning about it, and uh, that's uh, certainly harmless, and to keep the sakana front and center and to be very aware how that impacts things, and also regarding Shalach Manas, to make sure that the main thing is the main thing, that it's a mitzvah that's there to allow neighbors to help each other and to take the pressure off those who are financially strapped, and that if it would cause jealousy or cause more financial pressure, so that would also be going very much in the opposite direction. So to keep both those points in mind, hopefully we should be able to keep everything in balance and to keep everything safe and to make sure that the key values of this wonderful 
Yantif, this wonderful Chag, this wonderful Moed, however you want to term it, uh, should be able to be front and center, and we should all have a safe and truly Freilich and Perm. And I thank you very much. Shkach. Shkach.